Hey, it's Jen. Just a quick heads up before we start the show. The news is rapidly developing, and things may have changed by the time you hear this episode. For the very latest news, tune in to your public radio station and follow updates at npr.org. Delegations from Kyiv and Moscow are engaging in ceasefire talks this morning as the battle for Ukraine rages on. At least half a million Ukrainians have fled for their safety, while others have taken to underground bomb shelters. The next 24 hours will be hugely consequential. Both sides are now in Belarus discussing a possible ceasefire. The U.N. General Assembly will meet today to discuss the invasion. And also today, Russian President Vladimir Putin will chair an emergency meeting with his cabinet after sanctions, quote, significantly changed Russia's economic reality. The U.S. sharply boosted those sanctions this morning, taking aim at Russia's central bank. So where does the conflict stand and how are global leaders responding? We'll get into that and more after the break. I'm Jen White. You're listening to the 1A Podcast, where we get to the heart of the story. A reminder to have your questions answered on future topics or just to let us know what you think. Tweet us at 1A. Support for NPR and the following message come from BetterHelp, offering online counseling. BetterHelp therapist Hesu Joe knows that lockdown has been hard on us as humans. We as people are hardwired to connect with others, which is why this whole time is so difficult. The connection that happens between people can be very powerful and how healing it can be to have a healthy relationship with someone. To get matched with a counselor within 48 hours and save 10%, go to BetterHelp.com slash 1A. Support for NPR and the following message come from BetterHelp, offering online counseling. BetterHelp therapist Hesu Joe knows that lockdown has been hard on us as humans. We as people are hardwired to connect with others, which is why this whole time is so difficult. The connection that happens between people can be very powerful and how healing it can be to have a healthy relationship with someone. To get matched with a counselor within 48 hours and save 10%, go to BetterHelp.com slash 1A. Over this last year and a half, the world's been through a lot. So on this season of the StoryCorps podcast, we'll hear stories reminding us that even when times are hard, we can still begin again. Listen to our new season wherever you get your podcasts. We're rounding up the latest news from the war in Ukraine. Here to help us through it is Evelyn Farkas, the former Deputy Assistant Secretary of Defense for Russia, Ukraine, and Eurasia. Evelyn, welcome back to the program. Thanks for having me, Jen. Also with us is Arkady Ostrovsky, the Russia and Eastern Europe correspondent at The Economist. Arkady, welcome. Hey. And Hanna Shalist, the Director of Security Programs at the Foreign Policy Council's Ukrainian PRISM. She's also the Editor-in-Chief of UA, Ukraine Analytica, and she joins us from Odessa in Ukraine. Hanna, thanks for joining us again. Greetings from Ukraine. And we should note this is the latest information we have right now, but this is a a fast-moving story, so follow the latest throughout the day at NPR.org. Arkady, delegations from Ukraine and Russia are now meeting in Belarus. How much is expected to come out of these talks? Uh, I think they actually just finished uh, their talks, at least that's the information coming from um, Ukrainian uh, website, Ukrainska Pravda. Uh, I don't think there there was much concluded. I didn't hold out much hope, uh, to, to be honest. I think it's a, it's a bit of a sort of a side theatre uh, in which uh, 
was also sort of extraordinary participants, uh, including Roman Abramovich, one of Russia's richest man oligarchs, who actually was largely responsible for for bringing Vladimir Putin to power uh, 22 years ago. Uh, but I don't think we've uh, seen any breakthroughs um, in the past uh, few minutes or hours. Now, Hannah, you are in Odessa, which is on the Black Sea in southern Ukraine. How are things there? What have you been seeing? Um, the situation is definitely much safer and calmer if you compare with the uh, Kharkiv, Kiev or Chernigiv. Uh, however, even during the lunch, we had the attempt of the airstrike. Uh, the several missiles fall down just near the city line. Um, as for now, air defense is working uh, quite well. Our biggest problem on the south, that is saboteur um, groups. There are too many of them. Security services are reporting almost each hour about the new group being caught. Many of them are going up. I'm sorry, we have uh, as for now the how do you call the sirens? It Mm. looks like the aircrafts are coming. So at each of the moment, I can switch off. Uh, the issue is that uh, we had uh, groups coming uh, from Transnistria, that is the separatist territory, which is just um, on our border. It's something like, I don't know, 30 minutes drive from the city. And uh, many of them are making the storage for the weapons around the town. And there have been reporting of the locals who have been um, capturing them just in the middle of the town in different parts of the city. Yes, and Hannah, I just want to be, if you when, when and if you need to step away, please do so. And um, we will check back. Back in with you. Arkady, bring us up to speed on, on what happened over the weekend. Well, over the weekend, uh, Russia intensified uh, its, uh, its assault on uh, <clears throat> Ukraine, which was completely unprovoked. Um, it has been shelling uh, the large cities, it's been shelling Kyiv. Um, so far, um, mostly military uh, installations. Um, but also obviously causing damage, floods of refugees, um, uh, death among military and some civilians, although this has not been so far, thank goodness it has not been sort of a carpet bombing of the Grozny style, um, like in Chechnya. Uh, but the, the fire is intensifying. Russia is actually not progressing uh, as fast or as well as um, <clears throat> many had expected. I mean, given Russia's uh, the superiority of Russian uh, uh, firepower. Uh, the morale is said to be quite low. I think, you know, this is a very, I think the country, you know, Russia itself is in complete shock at what's happening um, because this, you know, the, the Kremlin never prepared the public uh, and probably never prepared the forces as well for this assault. A lot of soldiers seem to believe that they were just exercising uh, Russian public thought it was just posturing, it was bluffing, it was a threat. The idea that Russia uh, could go to full-on war against uh, na- not just uh, a neighbourly country, but a country uh, which many consider to be incredibly close, you know, brothers, is uh, unfathomable for, for a lot of people. I mean, there is a real sense of shock. Uh, it's, uh, you know, upturning people's lives, their whole perception of themselves, their country uh, and the world. Well, in a speech on Saturday, Ukrainian President Volodymyr Zelensky said Russia failed to quickly replace him with a puppet regime. He's saying, we successfully fought off enemy attacks. We are defending our country, our land, future of our children. Kiev and key places near the capital are under our control. The occupiers wanted to capture our capital and install their puppets like Donetsk. We broke their idea. 
Evelyn, how surprising is it that Ukrainian forces have held so strong so far? Well, Jen, on the one hand, it's surprising in because the Russians haven't really used their full firepower. On the other hand, it's not surprising at this level of engagement because for eight years we've provided the Ukrainian military with equipment and training. Um, so they should be able to hold their ground so long as the Russians don't um, succeed in getting air dominance and really come in heavy and strong. But obviously, that calculation involves a lot of risk now for the Russians politically. Well, on Saturday, President Putin placed Russia's nuclear forces on high alert. And on Sunday, the White House responded. This is really a pattern that we've seen from President Putin through the course of this conflict, which is uh, manufacturing threats that don't exist in order to justify further aggression. And the global community and the American people should look at it through that prism. We've seen him do this time and time again. At no point has Russia been under threat from NATO, has Russia been under threat from Ukraine. This is all a pattern from President Putin, and we're going to stand up for it. We have, we have the ability to defend ourselves, but we also need to call out what we're seeing here from from President Putin. Evelyn, what is this signal to you? She's not dismissing the threat. And I think that's really important, Jen, because I worked in the Pentagon for President Obama. I studied the Russian military doctrine. It says that they can use nuclear forces if they want to defend the existence of the state. And in fact, nuclear first use is is allowed. And now the existence of the state, if it is the same as the existence of Vladimir Putin in the Kremlin, that's a dangerous situation. And they have tactical nuclear weapons. Um, again, we, we know that they have discussed in the past things like demonstration uh, bombing. So using and detonating a nuclear bomb to show resolve. I mean, it, at the tactical level, not strategic, not at a U.S. city, but somewhere say, in the enemy territory or even on Russian territory. So it's very dangerous talk. We also heard from some of you who have family in Ukraine. Here's John in Baltimore. I have a wife in Ukraine, western Ukraine, stepsons that live in Kiev. I woke them both up last night for us, early this morning for them, told them that the assault had begun. My stepsons lived on the outskirts to the west of Kiev in a high-rise apartment building. Uh, the apartment building was bombed. So what the news coverage is missing is that civilian targets are being hit. They're being strafed with uh, large caliber bullets as well as bombs. People are trying to make it out of Ukraine, those that can. It's a horrible situation. John, thanks for leaving us that message. Hannah, Ukrainians are fleeing by the hundreds of thousands. Humanitarian agencies estimate that up to 5 million Ukrainians could flee to neighboring countries for safety. What's the latest on those being uprooted from their homes? Yes, definitely. The numbers now of the refugees is approximately 500,000 people, uh, predominantly in uh, Poland uh, and in Moldova. Uh, the Slovakia um, also accepted a lot of, of people. So you can understand that except for Poland, most of our neighbors are quite small countries. So for them, 30,000, 40,000 people, that is the huge uh, uh, numbers. But they are coping very well and assisting uh, that type of help that uh, we even couldn't imagine that would be possible. At the same time, probably the same amount of the people are internally displaced uh, during these days. So a lot of people from Kiev are traveling to Lviv, for example, or to Zhitomir, to other towns. The problem is that if previously it was the hope that uh, Lviv, the western city um, in Ukraine, will be safe, 
De facto, uh, the last night we had uh, several attempts to shell uh, just 13 kilometers from the Polish border. So you can understand how uh, close that is to the NATO territories. And uh, definitely Russians uh, stopped thinking about is it a military object or not. They started to target airdromes uh, um, in different parts. They started to uh, target the um, uh, diesel and fuel uh, storages and uh, um, even the cultural heritage. So this night there have been plenty of the uh, shots against the cultural heritage on museums around uh, the country. Why? That's another question. Either miss uh, uh, targeting, but that, that's the fact. And uh, what is happening now is definitely that people can't understand what is a safe place and where to go. Um, and uh, uh, that makes a lot of people panicking because even at the Polish border, with all assistance that we have, you need to spend at least 12 hours. And to get from uh, Kiev to Lviv usually takes you by car up to six hours. You can reach even quicker. Uh, but uh, uh, my friend's been driving for 29 hours. Mm. Um, uh, yesterday. So you can imagine the amount of the cars and people that are trying to move. That's in addition to the railway, because railway is just announcing new and new um, uh, trains that are with all security arrangements, but trying to travel there um, to the west of the country. But at the same time, we know wonderful examples of those Ukrainians who were stuck abroad because of their business trips and who are now trying to find all possibilities, but to get inside of the country to help um, their families and to help to uh, defend their town. Well, we just heard the UN General Assembly meeting is happening now to debate Russia's attack on Ukraine. Evelyn, what are you expecting to come out of this special session? Well, first of all, I really want to commend the Biden administration and our ambassador, Linda Thomas-Greenfield, for going there repeatedly and making the case because, as I put in a New York Times op-ed, which came out recently, this has to be a global effort to treat Russia like the rogue state that it is. And we've been waiting far too long to do what needs to be done. So what I hope will come out today is a a resounding condemnation with a high vote count. Uh, Obviously, we can't get this in the Security Council, but the General Assembly did condemn in 2014 the illegal annexation of Crimea. So I expect them to do the same here. In addition to that, I would hope, because this is clearly a threat to international peace and security, not only in Europe, but globally, especially with the nuclear threats, I would hope that there would be follow-on action, not just condemnation. So, you know, sanctions that are global, Jen. Well, the presidency of the council rotates on a month-by-month basis. What impact, if any, is that having on the UN's response to this invasion? Because I believe Russia is president for February. Well, it it obviously causes, uh, you know, a little bit of a glitch because you have to take votes on things. But frankly, we've managed to weather any kind of Russian interference thus far. I hope that the secretary general takes a principled position. Certainly his human rights officer, um, she's been actively looking at Russian abuses in places like Syria of, of civilians, which, of course, it looks like they're they're conducting themselves in the same fashion in Ukraine. So, again, I hope that the all of the U.N. officials who are responsible for the various aspects of this crisis of this war um, will pay attention. The refugee flows, the resulting hunger that will um, hopefully not happen, but it may happen. And then, of course, obviously, the um, the need to respond and, and make Russia stop, frankly. Well, let's get to another voicemail we got from a listener with family in Ukraine. Hi, my name is Anissa from Florida, Ukrainian-American. I'm in touch with friends and relatives in Kiev. Um, uh, they shelter in bomb shelters uh, overnight. 
and um, in the daytime, they're planning to take up arms um, against the uh, invaders. Some of the men are going to western Ukraine and taking their families there, leaving them there, and then returning to join the uh, civilian uh, resistance forces. So I think the resistance will be strong. There's a tradition where Ukrainians uh, rise up to defend their country in moments of crisis, and this is certainly one of them. Now, Ukrainian men aged 16 to 80 are banned from leaving the country. That's according to the Ukrainian State Border Guard Service. And Ukrainian President Zelensky has appealed to people across the globe to enlist in Ukraine's forces. Arkady, even with more fighters, how do Ukrainian forces stack up against Russian forces? Well, they're much, much smaller. Uh, I think the uh, Ukrainian force, uh, Hanukkah, uh, correct me, uh, the total Ukrainian army, I think, is about 200,000. Uh, maybe 200,050, uh, but that's sort of the, the total um, forces. The uh, forces that are at the moment on the ground in uh, eastern Ukraine uh, count about 60, uh, 65,000. Um, so, but Russia, of course, uh, doesn't have the entire army uh, there. Uh, it's about 200,000 people. Uh, man, uh, they're at the moment. Uh, I think they have advantage about two to one uh, where they're fighting. That's uh, significant, but that's not enough to overrun the whole country. Um, there is a second question, which is, to my mind, is is equally important. Is you know, even if um, Russia overwhelms Ukraine, uh, prevails militarily, which it might do, um, even if it gets into Kiev and installs the puppet government it's far from clear uh, how it's going to manage to uh, to stay there. I mean, it's occupational force. Um, it's rejected by a vast majority of Ukrainians. My understanding is, again, Hannah might uh, correct me, that uh, from what we understand is um, the support for, for the Russians in Kyiv um, is maximum maybe uh, 5 10% of that. It's probably bigger in places like Kharkiv. That was until uh, Russia started shelling it with Grad missiles. Uh, but we can see just how extraordinary the coming of to get, you know, coming together of Ukraine has been. I mean, it has been absolutely amazing <clears throat> show of unity, uh, support for President Zelensky, uh, whose rating was 25% before the war. It's now in the 90s. I mean, he's become not just national but international hero. For the first time ever, NATO response forces have been activated. Let's listen. We are deploying elements of the NATO response force on land, at sea, and in the air to further strengthen our posture and to respond quickly to any contingency. The United States, Canada, and European allies have deployed thousands of more troops to the eastern part of the alliance. We have over 100 jets at high alert operating in over 30 different locations. That was NATO Secretary General Jans Stoltenberg speaking on Friday. Evelyn, NATO troops will not be deployed to Ukraine since it's not a member, but what support does it provide? Well, I think, Jen, this is a real... Uh, message that NATO is sending. It's more political than military, although it 
it creates a deterrent to Russia to do anything that would impede on the sovereignty of NATO countries on air, land, and sea. This is the first time this response force has been activated. It can increase, the, the maximum size is 40,000. The U.S. announced at the end of last week that we are going to send another 7,000 um, troops, I believe. Most of them are first armored um, brigade, com brigade combat team from Georgia. Um, they will be thrown into this rapid response force. I think it's it shows how nervous the NATO leadership is about Vladimir Putin's next move, especially if he feels like he has prevailed in Ukraine. So we're looking now ahead at either potential inadvertent uh, violation of NATO sovereignty or Vladimir Putin doing something even more crazy and reckless. We, ha we can't rule it out. We'll get more into some of the more recent economic sanctions against Russia after the break. More from you and our guests in a moment. Support for NPR and the following message come from BetterHelp, offering online counseling. BetterHelp therapist Hesu Joe knows that lockdown has been hard on us as humans. We as people are hardwired to connect with others, which is why this whole time is so difficult. The connection that happens between people can be very powerful and how healing it can be to have a healthy relationship with someone. To get matched with a counselor within 48 hours and save 10%, go to betterhelp.com slash 1A. Over this last year and a half, the world's been through a lot. So on this season of the StoryCorps podcast, we'll hear stories reminding us that even when times are hard, we can still begin again. Listen to our new season wherever you get your podcasts. Let's get back to our conversation tracking the Russia-Ukraine conflict. Now, this morning, the U.S. escalated sanctions, freezing out Russia's central bank. During a press conference last Friday, President Biden was asked about the effectiveness of some earlier sanctions. The threat of the sanctions and imposing the sanctions and seeing the effect of the sanctions are two different things. Okay. They're two different things. And we're now going to, he's going to begin to see the effect of the sanctions. And what will that do? How will that change his mindset here, given he's because attacking Ukraine? Because it will so weaken we his country that he'll have to make a very, very difficult choice as to whether to continue to move toward being a second-rate power or, in fact, respond. Arkady, share with us the impact of these latest sanctions. Late on Saturday, the U.S., along with key European nations, cut Russia off from SWIFT. That's a global payment system, uh, which stands for the Society of Worldwide Interbank Financial Telecommunications. Explain what happens. Well, uh, what happens now is that uh, Russian banks have no access uh, to, um, to money. They can't refinance themselves uh, in international capital markets. Uh, basically, Russian uh, banks have no access to hard currency. The central bank, as I said, uh, had its assets frozen uh, outside Russia. Uh, we've seen the impact already. Uh, the ruble, Russian currency, has uh, plummeted uh, 30%. Uh, this morning, the, all the trading has been uh, suspended uh, on the stock exchange. Uh, the value from Russian companies has been completely wiped out. Some of the banks and companies are losing as much as 70, 80 percent of their value. The central bank had to introduce currency control. That means it's forcing uh, all companies to sell 80 percent of their um, rev export revenue, uh, their, heart, their foreign um, currency revenues, uh, to, to convert it into rubles. I mean, this is a massive uh, economic impact comparable to the 1998 financial crisis. Uh, the devaluation of the currency. I mean, this this is the uh, probably the, the biggest economic, uh, but not just economic, also political 
uh, and social uh, turmoil that Russia has seen uh, in 30 years. And, and so, Arkady, what does that mean for life in Russia? If, if the sanctions are now impacting the, the ruble, how does life change there? Well, you know, you go outside, you don't see immediate change yet. But, you know, people are very aware of it. I mean, the people have been withdrawing their hot currency deposits. I mean, there is another thing which is happening, which has not, not happened since the end of the Cold War, is that, effectively, there is an iron curtain. In fact, you know, Russians cannot travel abroad. Uh, they have to basically um, forget about a lot of the lifestyle um, uh, things that they got used to. It's a completely new reality. Uh, that came unwarned and overnight. Uh, nobody expected it. Uh, nobody anticipated it, really. Um, and perhaps for too long, the Russian public has put up with uh, foreign adventurism that, that Vladimir Putin displayed. You know, this is not the first war Putin went to, but he um, didn't incur any sanctions, uh, any serious sanctions after the war in 2008 in Georgia. And the Russian public was broadly supportive. Uh, he was cheered by the Russian public in 2014 when Russia annexed Crimea. Um, this is now has come home to roost. I mean, this is a big moment in Russia's history as a uh, post-Soviet state. We got this question from Kevin in Florida who emails, when have sanctions ever worked? The weak U.S. official response does not make me proud to be an American. It makes me mad that we have devolved into a society where it's all greed and nobody cares about their fellow man. Evelyn, explain more about the Biden administration's approach here. Well, Jen, so first of all, I want to answer his question directly. Sanctions have worked to bring rogue states to the negotiating table before. We used sanctions um, on North Korea in 2000 seven, eight time period. And the, the North Koreans came back to the negotiating table. Ultimately, the, we let up on the sanctions and they went away from the negotiating table, but they do work. They also worked in the case of Iran, as we know. The whole reason there's any negotiation right now today is because of sanctions. So they do work. They were unfortunately too weak on Russia. They were not affecting Putin's calculus up until now. I think that is about to change. The other thing I will say about sanctions that all of the opposition leaders mention. Um, so Vladimir Milov, for example, who is uh, an associate of Alexei Navalny, who, as you know, is the Russian opposition leader in prison today in Russia, who just got 15 more years slapped on his sentence last week. Vladimir Milov has said sanctions are also important, even if they're very small, because for the opposition living in an undemocratic authoritarian country, it is important to know that you have other people on the outside watching for human rights violations and speaking out for you. But these sanctions, Jen, in short, will work. They're more serious than ever before. And Arkady, what do, what do we know about Russian troop movements right now and, and how Russia is positioning itself, even as these talks are ongoing? Well, understanding is that Russia is continuing to advance. Uh, it's not advancing, as I said, as fast. Uh, the development this afternoon has been the shelling, uh, the heavy shelling of Kharkiv. Uh, we understand that saboteur groups are working uh, in and around Kiev. Um, but I don't have the latest uh, stuff in front of me. I mean, I'm, as I said, I'm in Moscow. Let's listen to another voicemail. Here is Stefan with their thoughts. I am first generation here with my father being from Ukraine. I am also a member of the media. I am a newspaper photographer. That one of the publishers I work for is following Putin's narrative, thinking that Ukraine belongs to the Kremlin. In one of his columns, he states 
that Ukraine is to Russia is what Texas is to the United States. And also that being the breadbasket of the USSR, Ukraine belongs to Putin and the Kremlin free for the taking. Evelyn, just lay out for us Russia's propaganda strategy around this invasion. Right. So, Jen, the Russian government, the Kremlin, does not does not want to, is not trying to sell this war as a war of the Russian people against the Ukrainian people. In fact, what the Russian government has been doing, it has been telling the Russian people that they are going in, that they are, uh, that they're sending their military in for a limited operation to essentially save the Ukrainian people from Nazis and drug addicts. Those are, of course, uh, Vladimir Putin's words, but basically from this, this cabal that is being pushed by the West to take control of Ukraine and push Ukraine into the Western sphere of influence. So they're not being told honestly what's going on, when indeed what is going on is that the Russian government, that Vladimir Putin and his small circle have decided that having Ukraine as a democratic state on their border is a threat to their autocratic, kleptocratic regime, and of course their desire to have a sphere of influence and reestablish some kind of Russian empire. The Russian people, by and large, would not view the the war as it is unfolding as a popular thing. And in fact, in many ways, it mirrors, and you can go back and look at Russia's experience in Afghanistan, it mirrors that today, lying to the forces, the conscript forces who are being sent in, the Mothers Against War, the same groups that were set up in the 80s to to protest the Afghan war, they're active today. Arkady, I'll come to you. What are you watching for in the next several days? Well, I'm watching for um, a change of Russian tactic. Unfortunately, I'm I'm worried about Russia starting to shell uh, not just the military, but uh, civilian infrastructure. I think um, I'm watching for uh, Russia's sort of much more you know, a lot more firepower. I mean, Russia's been at war now, uh, you, you know, with Ukraine for five days and has not yet uh, produced much in the way of result. Uh, so I'm watching for that. I'm also watching very closely for what impact it's going to have on politics here, because things are very, very tense. There are a lot of unhappy people, um, both uh, in, the, in the country at large and amongst the elite, because, as I said, this is Uh, This feels, uh, to be honest, in Moscow, this feels almost like a coup. That's Arkady Ostrovsky, the Russia and Eastern Europe correspondent at The Economist. He joined us from Moscow. We also heard from Evelyn Farkas, the former Deputy Assistant Secretary of Defense for Russia, Ukraine and Eurasia, and Hannah Shellist, Director of Security Programs at the Foreign Policy Council's Ukrainian PRISM. She joined us from Odessa in Ukraine. Thanks to you all. Today's producer was Michelle Harvin. This program comes to you from WAMU, part of American University in Washington, distributed by NPR. I'm Jen White. Thanks for listening. We'll talk more soon. This is 1A.